There's no trickier literary genre than the White House memoir, always perilously, sus perilously suspended between the twin traps of self-promotion and self-betrayal, homage to the king and les majeste. At their best, I think these books can read like the first draft of history, at their worst, like the last gasp of the outgoing administration. To help us ponder the intricacies of this genre, we're very pleased to have Joe Klein acting as our moderator. Joe has kept a close and invariably astute watch on the White House from observation posts as varied as Newsweek, The New Yorker, and most recently Time, Inc. And he published a fine book last year on the Clinton presidency called The Natural. You all remember his celebrated and anonymous Roman à clé, Primary Colors, about the 1992 presidential race, the first and arguably the last time in literary annals that an author has been bashful about claiming authorship. Joe will be writing heard, I hope, on a hard-charging panelist of both former White House insiders and outsiders. Uh, David Gergen, I think, has almost single-handedly kept alive a bipartisan uh, tradition, serving in the Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton administrations, and summing up his experiences in the best-selling Eyewitness to Power. Among many ports of call, David has been chief editor of US News and World Report, a perceptive commentator on the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and he currently directs the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard. Unless you've been hiding out under a rock the last few weeks, you know that Sid Blumenthal has just published The Clinton Wars, a probing and ambitious memoir of the Clinton presidency that historians, I'm sure, will be mining and debating for many years to come. As a correspondent for the New Republic, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker, Sid Blumenthal viewed the White House from the outside in. Then during Clinton's second term, as a highly trusted advisor to the president, he viewed things from the inside out. You always discover some startling tidbits when you're doing these introductions, and I was curious to learn that Sid wrote a play called This Town that was staged in Los Angeles in 1995, demonstrating a newly often fine line between statecraft and stagecraft. <laughs> Monica Crowley is not only the master of several media at this point, but a terrifying overachiever who has received not one but two master's degrees and a doctorate in political science from Columbia though she was probably a toddler during the Nixon administration, if I had to guess. She ended up working as his personal assistant in the early 1990s and gave us Nixon's voice from beyond the grave in two volumes of his reflections on people and politics. This busy lady now hosts her own radio show on WABC-FM and pops up as a commentator on Fox News. Finally, a special pleasure to introduce one of my favorite historians, William Luchtenberg, professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina, who published his first book, well, I think when I was about four years old, but shows no signs of yielding ground to younger historians. He's one of the foremost experts on the period between the two world wars. He has consistently written histories of a remarkable erudition and literary panache. If you haven't read William Luchtenberg on presidents ranging from Teddy Roosevelt to Ronald Reagan, I urge you to rush out after the panel and remedy that gap in your education. Finally, I'd like to thank three generous sponsors tonight's event, the Kaplan Foundation, FJC, a foundation of donor advice funds, and the New York State Council on the Arts. Enough said, splendid panel, we're very indebted to you folks. Let the fur fly. Okay, well. <clears throat> well, I, I, um, by way of introduction, let me say that I come to you tonight uh, from New Hampshire where I spent the day doing what I've uh, spent a good deal of my life doing, 
which is watching people run for president. Today it was John Kerry, and as I watched him with this panel in mind, I saw a very familiar sight. I saw Kerry surrounded by young men and women, uh, very natally and officially dressed, moving about sharply, um, and uh, competing for the candidate's ear, uh, advising him on policy, on scheduling, telling him how many questions he can take. And I sat there, as I, as I stood there watching this, I wondered, which one of these guys is gonna write a memoir that really betrays him <laughs> or praises him? Who's gonna be the loyal courtier who, who turns out the lights at the end of a Kerry administration such, should such an unlikely event actually come to pass? Um, but in any case, that's our topic for tonight. And what I'm gonna do is I'm going to ask uh, an initial question of, of each of the panelists, and then uh, maybe we'll talk among ourselves, uh, and then you'll have a chance to ask questions. There are microphones to the left and right, and if you stand up and, uh, and you know, the usual rules apply, uh, no speeches, keep it short, that kind of thing. Uh, but let's start with a very, with the broadest of possible questions, and it should go to the historian of the bunch, Bill Luchtenberg, and it is about the history of these sorts of, uh, of, of books. Um, how has the presidential memoir changed over time? And um, have we seen a proliferation of these sorts of books in recent years? Well, the, uh, the presidential memoir goes back to the uh, very first administration, to the administration of George Washington. His uh, Secretary of State, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, wrote a memoir uh, in which he said that his rivals, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, was not only a monarchist who was attempting to upset the uh, foundation of the Republic, but an active promoter of corruption. Uh, hmm. uh, he didn't, uh, that, that Hamilton didn't just think that corruption was something unavoidable, but something that was in the public good and, uh, and, and ought to be uh, promoted. And furthermore, that the uh, revered uh, President Washington uh, was showing uh, signs of senility. Oh, that's, that's where we begin with, uh, <laughs> with Thomas Jefferson's Annas. And uh, in the 19th century, there are a number of uh, memorable uh, memoirs by American presidents, uh, by Van Buren, who also talks about his role in the uh, Jackson administration, uh, by uh, John Quincy Adams and James K. Polk, uh, both of whom left uh, uh, vivid diaries that were uh, published, and uh, by uh, President Grant in a, in a heroic act of writing in the last uh, months of his <coughs> life as he was suffering from an excruciatingly uh, painful uh, uh, cancer of the, of the jaw. Uh, by the 20th century, we're beginning to get people around the, the president uh, writing memoirs. Uh, Joseph Tumulty, for example, who is uh, Woodrow Wilson's press officer, uh, writes about the Woodrow Wilson I know, and he ends the book with a very moving portrait of this man who had served for eight years, who was regarded as the possible savior of the world when he went to Paris not long before, uh, standing at Warren Harding's inauguration uh, alone, uh, neglected, reviled. By the time of Franklin Roosevelt, the proliferation that Joe was uh, talking about uh, becomes manifest. It appears that almost everybody around Franklin Roosevelt found a publisher. 
uh, we uh, think of books like uh, Francis Perkins's uh, uh, The Roosevelt uh, 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 I Knew, uh, uh, of a book like uh, Jim Farley's Story. So uh, this, is, this is far from being a new phenomenon. Nonetheless, to respond to Joe's question, I think there are three ways in which we may be seeing something new over the uh, past generation. One is that presidents used to be literate. <laughs> <laughs> so that when you read the autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, of whom it was said that he wanted to be the corpse at every funeral and the bride at every wedding, uh, when, when he writes, uh, uh, I took Panama, uh, you know uh, that you're hearing the authentic voice of, uh, of TR. Uh, Harry Truman's memoirs, on the other hand, were largely ghostwritten by a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, Lyndon Johnson's memoirs were written by a committee, and it looks, it reads that way. Uh, he was an outrageously pungent personality, but all suggestion of that is taken out of the uh, manuscript. The second way I think that uh, things have changed is that memoirs are uh, now far more critical uh, than they used to be, sometimes to the point of being un unrestrainedly so. They used to be benign. Uh, Nicolay and Hay were young men in their 20s when they were Lincoln's secretaries. When they come to write about Lincoln, uh, they, they write a filiopietistic uh, biography uh, of him. If you pick up a book like Attorney General Doherty's uh, The Inside Story of the Harding Tragedy, you think you're, you're, you're going to get the, 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 the dirt about Harding. Instead, uh, Doherty writes uh, that Harding achieved more in his two and a half years than Abraham Lincoln did. <laughs> As late as, uh, as uh, John F. Kennedy, the first accounts by <clears throat> people who were around him, uh, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, uh, Pierre Salinger, are not only approving of Kennedy, but they read almost like lawyer's briefs to the historical profession, uh, laying out why historians should uh, think well of them. Things have changed markedly. I think perhaps starting with uh, Emmett Hughes's uh, book on Eisenhower, uh, where Eisenhower throughout the volume it turns out to be a great disappointment to Hughes. Uh, there was a notion that went around that uh, Eisenhower wanted um, everything on only one sheet of paper so that his lips would not get tired. And that, that impression of Eisenhower is what you get from, from, from Hughes. Watergate, of course, uh, produced a great many books like uh, John Dean's uh, Blind Ambition. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he ran for president, said, I will not tell a lie to the American people. But Joe Califano, in his memoir, uh, said that when Carter fired him, uh, he lied to the press. And most of all, one can be uh, struck uh, by uh, the, uh, the, the, the way in which uh, uh, he deals with those people around him, saying that uh, uh, there had never been such venom directed at anybody as was directed at him by, uh, jo by Jody Powell and Ham Jordan. Finally, the, uh, I think what's different over the last generation is that memoirs are published while the president is still in office. Uh, I can think of only one earlier instances, uh, instance of this. 
uh, Raymond Moley's after seven years. But uh, Moley had long been away from uh, Franklin Roosevelt when, uh, when he wrote that. He had founded a publication that was the forerunner of, of, uh, of Newsweek, which Joe Klein knows something about. Uh, and uh, it was as much a journalistic uh, assessment of the New Deal as a personal uh, memoir. Uh, since then, though, there have been any number of memoirs of, uh, about presidents while they were still in office. When Gerald Ford uh, pardoned Richard Nixon, uh, his press secretary, uh, Gerald Tahorst, resigned. And before that year was out, he was in print talking about Ford. Uh, Donald Reagan uh, uh, wrote a memoir while, uh, during Ronald Reagan's second term, which revealed, among other things, that for weeks at a time, Ronald Reagan was held prisoner in the White House by Nancy Reagan's astrologer in San Francisco, who found that his horoscope would not permit him uh, to go out of the house uh, at, during those weeks. Bill Clinton has had still rougher treatment. Uh, after all, both DeHorst and uh, uh, Reagan uh, at least uh, contended that they were in favor of their, their subjects. But Bob uh, Reich, in, uh, in his memoir, uh, says that uh, uh, Clinton uh, betrayed liberal ideals uh, by willingly falling into the clutches of Dick Morris, whom he calls the black hole, uh, sacrificing the poor in order to pander to swing voters. Uh, when uh, Clinton uh, signs the welfare bill, Rice writes, I feel sick to my stomach. And uh, as uh, Joe Klein says in the natural, the, the attitude of Rice in the book is bitter and what he, what he says is right. Finally, uh, there's uh, uh, Stephanopoulos' uh, memoir. Uh, when, he, when he no longer can deny, can, in his own mind, that Clinton really did have an affair with Monica Lewinsky, uh, he writes, I was livid. How could he be so stupid, so reckless, so selfish? In sum, and the White House memoir has been around for some two centuries, but recently, it has had a much sharper edge. Thanks, Bill. That was a really amazing historical tour, although you did neglect to, to mention what I think is the weirdest of uh, presidential memoirs. It was done by William Bullitt, who was a member of Woodrow Wilson's team at the Treaty of Paris, and he wrote a memoir of his time with Wilson jointly with Sigmund Freud, oh, <laughs> uh, which is a very strange and angry book um, I recommend highly, I think. Now, when next comes David Gergen, who chose to wait until after, although you may go back to another White House someday, um, chose to wait after his service to three presidents, Ford, um, Reagan, and Clinton, to write his memoir of White House life, and thereby puts himself in a really remarkably, remarkable and unique position. You can tell us about the cultural differences between Democrats and Republicans, and whether there, are, there is a difference between Democratic memoirs and Republican memoirs. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm particularly pleased to see an old colleague, Harry Evans. I've been seeing for a while, Tina Brown. Um, I, I continue to mine Harry's book on the American century for courses that I teach 
for insights into American prisoners. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's an extraordinarily good, helpful book. The, um, and Bill, as I was thinking, one of the changes, I, before I get to the cultural differences, one of the reasons that I think that some of these memoirs are coming out so much more quickly now is that White Houses are in effect authorizing journalistic inside accounts that are almost instantaneous. Uh, the, the, the Bob Woodward Bush at War was in effect an authorized book. Uh, they, he was given uh, documents in, in a very open way and the president participated himself uh, in that uh, endeavor, so much so that uh, those who were left out of the fray at the time, a couple of people who were sort of not consulted by Woodward, were, before the, this last war started up, uh, were actively reaching out and looking for people, journalists, inviting journalists to come to, and spend the war with them uh, in order to write the next inside account of uh, uh, how it was done. So there's, a, there's pressure that's coming from other directions uh, for these uh, accounts to be done quickly. And, and, and the discrete interval that all of us, I think, tried to respect before I thought was appropriate for a memoir is no longer observed. You're absolutely right about that. As to the cultural differences, well, there are some. I, 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 I was, it was a regular occurrence walking through Air Force One in a Republican administration to see Tom Clancy almost, you know, the books by Tom Clancy almost everywhere. Uh, and I remember walking down to the uh, Clinton Air Force One, and of course there was John Grisham here and there. Uh, but there was also a copy of Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. On <laughs> Air Force One? <laughs> no wonder these people can't govern. <laughs> the, uh, uh, so th I, I, I think that uh, there is a tendency on the part of, of, of at least the White Houses I've experienced for Democrats to be uh, more literate in some ways. Uh, and and uh, some would say they're more acquainted with fiction. <laughs> oh, yeah. the, uh, uh, but Republicans also tend to be much more managerial, corporate in the way they govern, they, and it's much more straightforward, the information is more, is, is more straightforward, whereas Democrats, uh, Democrats love chaos. <laughs> they thrive on chaotic situations. They love the creative spirit, uh, and they sort of want to make it up as they go along. Um, and I think that that there's a difference in governing styles, and I think it, I think it shows up in the, in the types of memoirs that are traditionally written by Republican uh, advisors versus uh, Democratic advisors. Um, and that's, I think there are a couple of exceptions. One exception is, those, uh, is that carved out for uh, speechwriters who have a special dispensations from heaven, uh, and that the, uh, the two Republican speechwriters I think have written two of the best memoirs uh, of recent years. One is Bill Sapphire, and the other is Peggy Noonan. Those are, those are very well written, literate, you know, well thought through uh, pieces that I think will uh, stand the test of time. Uh, and there is perhaps one Republican in this administration who would write a strikingly interesting memoir, uh, and certainly as uh, Joe Klein and I were comparing notes before we came out here, one we would all love to read, and that is Karl Rove. Uh, <laughs> Um, he is, uh, this is a fellow who did not go to college in the beginning of his, at the, at the appropriate moment and became self-educated and eventually got a college degree. But one of the best read people I've ever met in public life in recent years, when he came to Washington, he brought 54 boxes of books with him. Uh, and uh, I wrote a column in U.S. News comparing him to Mark Hanna and very quickly uh, received a long letter from him pointing out all the reasons why he was not Mark Hanna. 
uh, he was uh, he was well schooled in. So I think he could write a a, a first rate memoir. But I do think there are some cultural differences. They're not they're not uh, deep cultural differences, but they're there. And I think they uh, uh, that they sometimes have made democratic books uh, a little more graceful and republican books a little more straightforward. Um, I, I think back to one of the books that over the last 30 years that to me is one of the best memoirs of the last 30 or 40 years is Harry McPherson's book about the Johnson years, about his political education. And that is an extremely well-written book. And, and Harry McPherson is the kind of person, he sort of a, has this renaissance quality about him. He's the kind of person you like to see in the White House and I think tends to write a very good memoir. Thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> Monica, um, you're so well educated and <laughs> such a serious student of foreign policy um, that there's only one possible question to ask you, which is, how weird a guy was Nixon? <laughs> and what's it? And and um, and when you're writing about Joe, that's not a question I've ever heard before. <laughs> no, I figure, but you know, let's many um, times. But but when you're when you're faced with the you know. The, the prospect of writing a book about someone who is as perplexing and complicated and on, one, on the one hand, when it came to foreign policy, so high-minded, and on the other hand, we know all about the other hand. Um, what sort of challenges did you face in, in, in that regard? And, and also, how weird was he? <laughs> I knew that question was coming, Joe. I'm glad you asked me up front. Um, first of all, it's nice to see my friends Harry Evans and Tina Brown, both of whom have published me on Nixon, Tina Evan, New Yorker, and Harry Evans, of course, published both of my books on President Nixon at Random House, so it's nice to see the two of you. Um, my circumstances, I think, were a little bit different um, in that I wrote about my experiences working with President Nixon during the last four years of his life, so clearly he was out of the White House and, uh, and had a great deal of time that had passed since leaving the White House to reflect on his presidency and what it had meant, what his life more broadly had meant. Um, in fact, I know during my introduction, um, it was said that I was probably a toddler when Nixon was president. That was true. I was born the year he was elected president. And when my first book came out, I had a woman approach me and say, girl, who is your plastic surgeon? <laughs> And I said, excuse me, she said, well, you, I mean, how old were you when you worked in the Nixon administration? I said, no, no, not the Nixon administration, the last four years of President Nixon's life. Um, I came to him straight out of college. Uh, I was 21 years old. It was my first job, and uh, quite an extraordinary job for somebody so young to be working with the 37th president, who was probably the most controversial figure of the 20th century, Bill Clinton accepted, Sid. Um, and I came to him uh, originally as a research assistant, and then I became a foreign policy assistant with him. And I spent the four years working with Nixon, um, talking to him for hours every single day. Even days that I didn't see him, we spoke on the phone. And I decided that I would take notes about all of my conversations with him because I felt at the time that it was such an extraordinary experience for me personally, but also in historical terms, that I did not want to miss a word of what he was telling me. And much of it was very serious, of course. It had to do this with the state of the world and domestic politics. But a lot of it was straight gossip. A lot of it was jokes. A lot of it had, I thought, uh, was not particularly meaningful to anybody else except for me. 
And Nixon was aware that when I was sitting with him and we were talking, he was aware that I was taking notes because I'd keep a yellow legal pad in front of me the way he always had a, a yellow legal pad in front of him. And uh, we were talking, in fact, uh, in the green room beforehand, and, and it was said, I guess, David, somebody said that Bill Clinton is writing his memoirs longhand, and that's how Nixon wrote all of his speeches longhand. So he would be in front of me with his yellow legal pad, and I'd be sitting with mine. And at one point, he looked at me, and he said, uh, Monica, you know, someday you should write a book. And I said, uh, well, I, you know, it, it hadn't occurred to me at that point. And then he sort of laughed and he said, no, you have much more important things to do with your life. But that was Nixon's way of saying to me, write a book. Um, and I think that all presidents have it in mind that the people around them, and I know this held true for Nixon, that he was extremely loyal to his people, which is one of the main reasons why Watergate got to the point where it got. But he expected that loyalty back in kind from the people who served him. And there's something about certain presidents, I know Nixon was one of them, um, George W. Bush, I think, is another one of those kinds of presidents that inspires incredible loyalty among their people. And so the challenge I faced, Joe, in, in writing this, um, and, and I was thinking about it, and I was so, I, it, President Nixon was a mentor to me. He was also like a grandfather to me. He was a friend to me, too. And I really struggled with the kind of portrait that I wanted to put out there. And Bill Sapphire, as a matter of fact, was the one who encouraged me to write about President Nixon. And he said, in fact, uh, Sapphire down at the New York Times, this is a couple months after President Nixon passed away, and Sapphire took me to lunch, and we were eating our navy bean soup, and I just happened to say off the cuff that I'd been keeping all of these extensive notes of all of my conversations with Richard Nixon over four years. Sapphire looked at me, and he said, well, you've got to write a book. He said, that's non-negotiable. You've got to do it, because you owe history uh, the kind of personality, the kind of person, the kind of persona you saw in Richard Nixon. You owe that to everybody else. And so I decided right at the outset that the kind of book I would do would remove me from, from the storytelling, that I would just be there as the narrator, but I would allow Nixon to speak for himself. And so I essentially uh, recreated every single conversation I had with him, and I organized the book according to, to subject matter, of course, but I reconstructed those conversations so that he would be able to jump out off the page to all of you. So it was like you were sitting in the room with him. And uh, in fact, Harry Evans had a great idea. I wanted to call my volume Nixon in Winter. And he said, oh, Monica, that's a brilliant literary title. We could call the second book that. And I said, <laughs> what are we going to call the first book, Harry? And he said, Nixon off the record. And it was brilliant. It was a brilliant, brilliant idea because that's what I wanted to get across, that, that, you, that you as the reader were going to be privy to all of the conversations and all of the situations I was privy to. And I laid it all out so that you could see Nixon um, at his smartest, at his worst, at his most grieving after Mrs. Nixon passed away, at his funniest. You would get an entire human portrait of the man rather than the one-dimensional caricature that I think we so often get of President Nixon. I mean, when I first started working with him, I was so afraid of him because I thought I was going to encounter the kind of Darth Vader personality uh, that you get in, in the public images of Nixon. And the man that I encountered had some of that as part of his personality, but that was a small percentage of the larger man. And so I felt a responsibility, given this great privilege of working with him during the last years of his life, to lay all of that out. And so the portrait that I decided to write, Joe, was one that, that showed all of those aspects of President Nixon, and then lay it out there and allow the reader to decide. Thanks a lot. I, I should add my praise uh, of both Harry and Tina, and especially <laughs> Harry's, Harry's ability 
Harry's, Harry's ability to uh, choose a title for a book and also to choose the name of the author. <laughs> um, Sid. Uh, Joe. <laughs> we've known each other for 30 years. Um, you, you, are, you are and have been a figure of controversy in Washington because of your loyalty. Um, and, uh, and you've written a book that when it has been criticized, it's been criticized for its excesses of loyalty. And so I think that the, you know, the fairest thing for, you, for, for me to ask is for you to defend what you've done um, and tell us why a book like the, why a memoir like the one that you've written should be taken seriously uh, by people now and also by history. Thank you, Joe. But um, first I have to do my acknowledgments like everyone else. As okay. you do in these memoirs, uh, um, Joe and I worked together in journalism in the real paper, and sort of alternative newspaper in, in, the, in Cambridge uh, 30 years ago. And I first met David Gergen when I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about his work in the Reagan White House. And um, I have three editors out there, of course, Tina. <laughs> um, I would be the only one here if I didn't <laughs> acknowledge Tina, Rick Hertzberg, and my editor, Elizabeth Sifton. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, told by the White House lawyers uh, for about a year and a half not to keep notes. And um, I knew what the reason didn't have to do with the fact that people thought I might write a memoir. Um, and that begs the question of, of writing such a memoir. I knew I couldn't write it anonymously. I begin the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, be, I began the book. I was talking to Bill Luxenberg um, earlier um, at Franklin Roosevelt's library. Um, I had been a uh, writer for The New Yorker and uh, was there in uh, March uh, in 1993 when President Clinton, who had been in office for less than two months, came to Hyde Park for the very first time. Um, I wrote this up for The New Yorker. And in the uh, book, I have been able to reflect on this. I remember walking through those exhibits in Roosevelt's library. And you can see from the beginning to the end the whole chronology of FDR's life. You see the boy, you see the you see him running for the state senate. You see his banners. You see the letter from Einstein when he's president urging him to build the atomic bomb before the Nazis. You see Roosevelt before cheering crowds. And you see his, you walk around his desk. I did this all alone before Clinton came in. And, I, and the thought I had was, as I reflect in the book, that when you're going through these events, all these events in retrospect appear as we, as we think of them now, it all makes sense. It, it all seems like a tale foretold. It's deeply part of our lives, the Roosevelt story. But when they were going through it, they didn't know what was going to happen. They were looking through a glass darkly. And even the smartest of the brains trust was not omniscient to see what would happen day by day and could not predict the events. And suddenly, Bill Clinton arrives at the beginning of his presidency. What would happen? Um, what could he predict? He's somebody who was highly intelligent, uh, was politically adroit, and yet encounters enormous difficulties, has to grow in office, makes numerous mistakes, is 
flawed as a human being. What happens in this presidency? And yet also has great ideals and goals. Um, in my, I, I, I went from, from covering that um, to entering into um, public service in the government in the second term. And I was able to not only observe, but to be a participant in all the many activities that went on in the White House. And in my book, I wanted to present the political history of the whole Clinton administration, as I understood it, and my memoir. Um, I wanted this to be a historical contribution. It would be a historical contribution capturing the immediate memories of the sensibility in the White House, which fades over time. One of the things that I learned, um, and I learned it also uh, by appearing before the, um, Ken Starr's grand jury three times, is that your memory does not, fades pretty rapidly. You can all, you can, it's very hard to remember events ex exactly, especially when you're not keeping notes. Um, I had to rely on my colleagues. I went back to my colleagues. I had memories. Some of them needed adjustment. Um, and I went back to my colleagues and reviewed talking to them and uh, going through the different events, trying to recreate what it was like in this real West Wing. And all West Wings and all White Houses are very different. The process of government is very different in every single White House. Um, and I also wanted to create what it was like in the Clinton, uh, in Clinton's Washington. Um, when, I, um, when I finished this book, um, I gave a copy to um, Senator Clinton. It was all done. First time I gave her the book. She came over to uh, our house, uh, and we sat down, and one of the things that she reflected on was how rapidly, in such a short period of time, everything had changed in Washington. Just everything, from the time that we had been in the White House to where things were now. Um, and, of course, she made political judgments on that. But what's what, what that means is you re it's very hard to capture um, these uh, changes in Washington. And, po and political Washington is a very hard animal to describe. It involves not simply the politics on the axis that runs up and down Pennsylvania Avenue from the Congress to the White House. It involves, now in modern times, the role of the media, which is very amorphous and has enormous influences, some very unseen. And people in the media play very direct roles. And regardless of the creed of objectivity, they are direct actors in this process. And also social Washington, which has always, um, at least uh, since the, uh, e even before Washington became a capital in Philadelphia, played an important role in uh, the shaping of government. So I wanted to capture all of that. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it is that um, I wanted to uh, present um, not just the sensibility and, not, and certainly not simply as a, you know, as a, it's been charged as a defender, which is uh, often just used to discredit a certain uh, position, but the facts the historical facts as I understood them as accurately as I could capture them from this unique perspective that someone who had been inside uh, and part of a collective, a group of people 
could present. Um, often, the, these facts, um, as we understood them in the White House, and not just understood them, and as they were established later, and even as I gathered some hindsight in writing it, and um, having a couple of years to write this enabled me to gain some distance and some disinterested view of all of these events, uh, was that these ran counter to the first rough draft of history, as journalism has often been called. Um, and the first rough draft of history is very much part of the history, but it's not the history. And it's often wrong, and it was very wrong in the Clinton times. And some of the reviews reflect a continuation of these tumultuous times. It's the momentum of these conflicts and of people's investment in their roles and in their views um, that carries over as they fight for their interpretation and even for the suppression of certain facts uh, involving um, all kinds of events, including so-called scandals. So if the, Clinton, if the Clinton presidency is over, what I've discovered, at least through the publication of my book, already, even though it doesn't appear in the bookstores until tomorrow, I remind you all, um, is uh, that um, the Clinton wars themselves continue at least through the reviews. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, you, <clears throat> you, raise, uh, you raise a couple of very, very interesting points, and, uh, and I think that Monica uh, brought this up first, but I'd like to ask, especially David, Sid, Monica, I think Monica's already answered this question. Um, you know, did, did you feel that the presidents whom you worked for knew that you were going to do what you were going to do? Um, did, did Bill Clinton have it in his mind when he was looking at you and talking to you that he was looking at the second draft of history? Um, and, uh, and also, given the role of the media uh, in our era, and this is for, for you uh, as well, David, both of you were White House aides who were who had uh, acknowledged journalistic gifts, which could be of service to a president. Did the president see you as a potential memoirist, as a journalist, as a staffer? How did that break down, and uh, and how did you see your principles? Uh, Bill Clinton was very concerned with his legacy. However, I don't think he gave a thought to the idea that anyone around him was going to write about it. He was completely consumed with what he was doing at the time. He may have worried about how sometime in the distant future he would be shaped by history, but he was just immersed in what he was doing then. J David was also in the Clinton White House and saw how um, completely engaged, I think, Clinton was with all aspects of what was going on around him at, at the time. And that doesn't mean that he couldn't think in terms of uh, far horizons, but I don't think he, he really gave it much thought. Um, I think that um, um, when you're in the middle of it, uh, you have to remember that being in the White House um, is like being at the other end of a fire hose. Um, just things are just rushing at you constantly. You are just, you are often overwhelmed by events and 
uh, if you can keep some perspective on the events that are happening as they happen and you are in the middle of them, that's an enormous feat, much less thinking about what you're going to, you know, someone else thinking about what someone else is going to do afterwards. I just, um, I don't think that's why people are brought into White Houses. They have immediate tasks to do. Um, and but, uh, but if I remember correctly, when, when the Stephanopoulos memoir came out, there was a great deal of anger and bitterness uh, in the White House about that. Uh, and even before that, as David very accurately pointed out, uh, when Bob Woodward's semi-memoir of the, uh, the budget process in the Clinton administration uh, came out, the agenda, um, there was also a great deal of consternation. Um, how does, the, was there, a, there, there had to be some consciousness of the fact that there was nothing off the record. Well, nothing's off the record when you're on the inside. I mean, you're not in there as a journalist, you're in there working, and th that's an important distinction. One of the things that I, I mean, no one's there as a journalist. You're there to work. Um, you're there for government service. You're there because you believe in it. Um, that's why you're there. You're there because you believe in the, in the government and the goals of the president, and you were there to serve his purposes as he sees fit. You're not there because you're a journalist and you have a dual role. Um, you can have a historical perspective when you're doing it, but that's no, a not, very different thing. I'm not asking about, about you. I'm asking about the impact of, on, on the president himself of the act of being president in a time when, you, when, he, had, when he had already been betrayed um, by people within his own, uh, with his, within his own in, inner circle and how, what impact that had on the presidency itself. And, I could, and then, David, you could jump in. I don't think any president knows who will write what about them. They have no control over what private thoughts you have, over what you might ultimately say. Um, they have no control over it. And once you're out of office, you are completely free um, uh, to say whatever you wish about this record. Um, and presidents uh, out of office are very strange animals indeed. Um, and Stranger inside of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they are, you know, it, it, the obligations are very different when you're out of office. And your obligations are whatever the connections that you maintain are greater towards history and your sense of the, the record and establishing something that will last so that in the future um, historians will find this a valuable contribution. Um, that was my sense of it. David? Yeah. Uh, Joe, you're raising some of the most sensitive points I think anybody uh, faces who wants to write a memoir uh, that has an in inside account quality to it. Uh, there is no formal understanding with the president that I've seen, perhaps there have been in some, some individual instances, but by and large, uh, there is a sort of a working assumption that perhaps one day people around a president will write a memoir. But I, I, I think that the, for a variety of reasons, I, I tend to be pretty old-fashioned about this. The, if a president feels that the person sitting in front of him is instantaneously going to write a memoir while that individual is in office, it can have a hugely damaging effect upon the, upon the conduct and the formation and conduct of public policy. 
I don't know any president who's willing to talk openly if he thinks he's talking into a microphone that somebody is in effect privately wired is going to race back and take notes and going to publish something within the next six months while he's still in office. It just it has an extraordinarily inhibiting quality. And what you find is any president who thinks he's in that position is going to cut that individual out and he's going to have very closed circles in which he's going to be willing to talk because there are certain people he trusts and certain people he doesn't trust. And uh, I, I think it's a... Um, David Herbert Donald, uh, who wrote a, a wonderful biography of Lincoln, I once asked him, what's the most important asset a president needs? And he said, a friend. Uh, I thought that was such an interesting insight. And he said, you know, the president needs someone with whom he can be totally level, he knows is not going to write about it, in effect. And I think hey, that's- hey, David, wasn't it Harry Truman who said, you can't have a friend as president, so get a dog? Yeah, well, yeah. in Washington, in Washington. Um, but let me just go back to this. I, so, it seems to me those of us who have done this, uh, and, I, and I have written a, a, an account which did you know, offer itself up as being an eyewit eyewitness to powers, the, the title Alice Mayhew in my case, uh, as an editor, and she's a wonderful editor, uh, helped to choose. Uh, the, I felt that there are several things, reasons for restraint. First of all, if you have the privilege to work in government in the White House, you are exposed to people in their most vulnerable moments and there are qualities about people, they just have to be human at times. <coughs> and, you, you know, and, and, and this old saying about no man is a hero to his valet pertains here. You're going to see the rough side. You're going to see aspects of a president that if published uh, would, would sell books, but are they fair to him to publish in those circumstances? Is it fair to show that rough side? Uh, after it, when you've been exposed to it and invited in. Secondly, you, ha you are taking ma money from this person. I mean, you are in his, his pay. And there's a certain quality here of, you know, if you're not careful of a betrayal at a certain level, if you're not very, I think, very careful. And thirdly, let's face it, an awful lot of people who go into the White House now uh, gain a public reputation. And they can build on that for years to come. They can make a whole, uh, I'm, I'm one of the beneficiaries of that. And so when I wrote about Richard Nixon, and I had some pretty tough feelings about aspects of Richard Nixon, but I, I also realized if it hadn't been for Richard Nixon, I wouldn't have been in public life probably. And so I, there was, I have a gratitude to him that I think ought to be on display. Yeah, and so it is, it's a question to me on these issues of how do you strike a balance that's fair to the reader and yet is also fair to the person from whom you took bread and, was, and put you in a position of some privilege. And, and for that reason, it, it, I think there has been, 